Saturday morning at 3 a.m., right? Okay. All right. So I will update that and fix all that for Wednesday. So that'll probably be what the switch will be. I'll switch the homework will be due here. That way at least you've done it. I'll give it back to you that morning before the exam so you'll have a chance to look at it at least if you want to before the exam to see any comments on it. And that'll make more sense because it does cover chapters 14 and 15 which are going to be on the exam. And then the article review will get pushed off a little bit later and will be due. That will be due the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So if you're not going to be here, you can submit it on, you know, it'll, be th it'll technically be due Thanksgiving morning at 6 a.m. How do you like that? Okay. But then you get it done and then you've still got Thanksgiving Day, you're done. So it's not due the Friday morning when everybody's out shopping. It, you, you've got Thanksgiving Day still off. But you can always turn it in ear early. No, I know. I know. I know. So other than that, everything else will stay. I'll update that for Wednesday and give you a couple updates on the give you a couple updates on, on things that will be changed there. Um, exam replacement, do the 18th, and then the couple of quizzes. You got a bunch of stuff. Actually nothing this week. This was a quiet week for you. Yay, right? Once in a while you get a quiet week. The iTunes quiz is available, but if you really want to wait until this weekend, you don't have to worry about. There's two quizzes that, this weekend, and then the exam replacement, if you're going to do that, is due on uh, Monday. So. And I'll update the rest of that, rest of that afterwards. So, question, questions. We're good. All right. Picture of the day for today then. It's not a picture. It's actually several pictures. That is the sun. We didn't know that, right? There's the sun at the center there. Looks like some of the images of the sun that I showed you. During, uh, during our le lesson on the sun. Uh, it's actually an ultraviolet image of the sun. So when you look at an ultraviolet image, the hotter areas, the more, um, the more active areas look bright as compared to a regular visible image where the active areas, the sunspots, look dark. So here the active areas or the, su the sunspots that are showing up would be the very bright areas. So a lot of very bright areas here. This was taken about a week ago. The sun was getting unusually active, had a lot of sunspots. Um, even though we're near solar maximum, an unusual number even for, even for that. The second image is sort of right around it and sort of melded into it here is an actual image of it during the eclipse. So you've taken one image of the sun there, put that on top of the eclipse image where the moon was blocking out the sun and seeing some of the outer layers, some of the more, some of the chromosphere, some of the further areas out around that. And then taken a little bit later, about, I think they said it was about 10 minutes after the eclipse, was an image of the solar corona. So you got the big mask here that was blocking out the entirety of the sun and you're seeing the corona all around it. Very active sun. The corona is um, very irregular, irregularly shaped. So you've got all sorts of different bits, bits to it. You can actually see some kind of streaming out here perhaps where something interesting is going on. And astronomers like to, or like to do this, put the images together and taking it roughly the same time, you know, taking pretty much that, that day of the eclipse around that time and then be able to compare, you know, is there something going on on the sun? Is there some unusual activity here perhaps where it looks a little brighter and is that related to the activity in the corona? So you're trying to be able to relate all of that together to be able to better understand 
the sun, which honestly we don't understand very well. So, yeah. And is the second image also in the infrared with the corona? The second image with the corona is, and let me double check. I'm pretty sure that was visible, but let me just see if it says here. There's a ground-based image. We knew that one. That's a visible light. I pretty. That's a looks like a visible light image. Yeah. So the only one that's ultraviolet. There's nothing else. It's all it's all visible or visible light or ultraviolet. The only one that's ultraviolet is the one in here. But again, just to try to be able to compare to see where where are the storms on the sun and how are they how are the storms on the surface of the sun or close to the surface affecting the corona further out. So looking for some kind of comparison is there as to where there's more sunspot activity. You know, perhaps over here, they said perhaps over here and perhaps having some more some more sunspot activity, some activity there. So Unusually active, if we get one of those sunspots, you know, coming, pointing towards us, sending us some particles, and we'll get to see some nice, get to see a nice aurora or something, hopefully. So, question? I'm sorry? I brought this up on Monday. Is there going to be any kind of pictures about this? Oh. Any kind? If you talk to them, I don't know. I don't, I don't get to pick the picture. They, they pick it and put it up there, and I never know until this morning what I'm going to talk what I'm talking about. So kind of nice because it does lead some fresh things in that, you know, not just the old stuff we know, but some more modern things. So well, maybe they maybe they heard us and decided to decided to listen to it. Other questions? Alrighty, well let's go oops, I guess it would help if I actually opened the got busy putting all the other stuff up and I did not put the lecture up. That would help a little bit. We are chapter 14. Let's take a second here. And we're looking at now, we're sort of moving out from stars and looking at our galaxy as sort of a beginning point, sort of the way we looked at our sun and then went on to talk about stars in general. Now we're going to look at our galaxy and then next chapter we'll be talking about galaxies in general. So we looked here, we were right about here. I believe, yep. So we were looking at a couple different types of stars and these were variable stars, stars that really vary in brightness. They pulsate. So they get larger and they get smaller. So they get larger and bigger and brighter and then they condense down and they'll get smaller and a little bit fainter. And they'll change by a good amount. They can change by a factor of two in brightness. So very e two, th two to three in brightness or so. So something that's very easy to see in an image, and that's what we were looking at here. This is actually again two images of the sky put together, overlay them, just offset them a tiny bit, and every star is there and repeated. Right? There's two images of that star, two images of that one. Here's one over here, and the one in the middle that's sort of marked is one of these variables. I think this was a Cepheid variable, yeah. Cepheid variable when it's at its brightest and when it's at its faintest. Not a big giant difference but a significant one and very easy to measure. The thing that we like about these is that they are very easy to detect. As long as you can see the star and separate it out from anything else, you could measure the period of that Cepheid variable. How long does it take to pulsate? How long is it one day? Is it a hundred days? You can easily measure that. You just need time 
and images. But luckily these times, unlike most of the times we talk about, when we talk about millions of years or billions of years, we don't have a chance to be able to observe those. Here we can actually do it. We can actually observe. We only got to observe for a few months, a few years, a couple years and get a good, nice observation of how long it takes one of these stars to vary. They're not on the main sequence. They're actually closer to the giant, giant phase. So they're not white dwarfs. They're actually stars. They're actually really big, bright stars. In fact, I'll show you them on the HR diagram here in just a moment. In fact, that may be. Oh, you see, you asked the question, and there it is. Um, where are they on the HR diagram? They're sort of just off the main sequence. They're up in some of the giant, some of the giant phases. Uh, closer to the blue than the red, though, but. Some of the giant stars up here they, was where they fall. And the RR Lyrae stars fall pretty much horizontally. They're all pretty much the same brightness. The Cepheids fall in this section and can go from you know, similar brightness to the RR Lyrae, just a little bit more, up to significantly brighter. And they fall in what we call an instability strip. It's an area of the HR diagram when a star happens to fall in there, has that temperature and that luminosity. It's not stable. Doesn't mean it's going to tear itself apart or blow itself apart, but it will try to stay stable. But sometimes it produces too much energy in the core. And like with the sun, we said the sun tries to produce too much energy, it quickly balances. Tries to produce too much energy, that heats it up, it expands a tiny bit, and it immediately cools off and stays stable. These stars do the same thing, but instead of just doing it a tiny bit, they change a lot. They put too much energy, that expands them, they get much brighter, then they cool off and they get fainter again. So they have much larger variations than something like the sun. Something like the sun you wouldn't be able, it's too, too minor, it's, very, it's almost immediate. It tries to produce too much energy, it immediately cools itself off and stops producing too much energy. Or if it cools off too much, it contracts a tiny bit and produces enough energy to bring it right back to where it was. These ones in this very specific region of the HR diagram, when a star falls in there, it becomes unstable. So it can start pulsating as these do and then get brighter and fainter. So big deal, right? The star gets brighter and fainter. Yippee, right? Yay. Do we care? Actually, we do because there is a it gives us a way of learning about these stars and tells us something else. We can actually learn from this, from these oscillations, we can figure out how far away the star is. Now that's a bigger thing to figure out. A big deal that it just, that it just uh, varies in brightness, but when we can use that variation to determine something that's very difficult to learn in astronomy, the distances, then it becomes very important. So. Why are they so useful? Here it is. There's a relationship between the period, how long it takes them to pulsate, going down to about half a day for some of the RR Lyrae stars, up to about 100 days for some of the Cepheids. All of the RR Lyrae stars that have been found are essentially the same brightness. Are there some little variations? Yeah, they're not perfect, but they're all about the same brightness. Brightness not meaning apparent brightness, how bright they appear to us in the sky, but how bright they really are. If we put them all at the same distance away from the Earth, they'd all be right about the same brightness. So that's great. That means as soon as I can go and identify an RR Lyrae star, if I can identify it in the sky, 
I know how bright it really is. I know intrinsically how bright that star is. So any variations from that brightness tell us how far away it is. So it should be so bright, it's one quarter as bright as it should be, so it's twice as far away. We can immediately get a distance. So all we have to do is find an RR Lyrae star, boom, we know the distance to that. They're also bright stars. If you look here, these things are 100 times brighter than the sun, 10,000 up to pushing 100,000 times brighter than the sun. That means we can see them over large distances. So we can actually see them further away and be able to determine distances beyond which what we, we were able to determine close. The, the near, more nearby stars. We can see these over much larger distances than we can see a lot of the main sequence stars. Now, the RLI rays are the easy ones. You find one, you know how bright it is immediately. Cepheids, not quite, but there's a relationship. And you see a bunch of them plotted there. There's, how, there's their luminosity, how bright they are, versus the period. And they're not scattered all over the place. They form a pretty good straight line. Meaning that those that take the longest time to pulsate, that take you know, 90, 100 days to pulsate, are the ones that are the brightest. Those that take the shortest time to pulsate are the faintest. So there's a relationship between how long it takes them to pulsate and how bright they are. So now for Cepheids, you got two steps you got to do. You got to first of all identify the Cepheid, measure its pulsation period, and once you do that, you know, it's 20 days, boom, it's about 10,000 times brighter than the sun. We know how bright it is, how bright it should be. We can observe how bright it appears to be and we can get its distance. So these are very important as one of our next steps in being able to determine the distance to objects in space. And it works very well, especially uh, some of these stars happen to be located, you know, you determine the distance to a star, but if they're located in a cluster, and if you can determine the distance to one star in a cluster, you've just determined the distance essentially to all of those stars. So you can actually get a lot of distances out of this, not just one. If you can find one of these in another galaxy that you can observe, you can for the very closest galaxies, you can now determine the distance to that galaxy. This is how we actually found that the Andromeda galaxy was a separate galaxy from ours. It's been less than 100 years that we've known that. But Edwin Hubble observed, found Cepheids in, that, in the Andromeda galaxy. He was able to distinguish them, measure their periods, find out their determine their, know their luminosities, find out how bright they appear to be, and determine the distances and, and find out that they're well beyond anything that was estimated for the size of our galaxy. So using this method, we actually were able to determine that the galaxies, those little tiny nebulae, fuzzy things that were seen out in space, were actually separate galaxies like our own. We didn't know that for sure 100 years ago. Some astronomers thought they were, some astronomers thought they weren't. So it was a big debate at the time. It wasn't until we actually found something using something like this to be able to determine that. So here it is again. I've given you that. I'll give you all in text here. Um, really the big thing is it gives us a way to measure the distances to these stars. The RLIRE stars, all about the same luminosity. And pretty close. The minor variations aren't going to make that much of a difference compared to all of the other errors that go into determining distances. So once we know it, once we find an RR Lyrae star, we watch it for a little while, watch it pulsate, figure out that it is an RR Lyrae star, we now know its absolute magnitude because they're all the same. 
So once we identify it as that type of star, we know its absolute magnitude. If we know the absolute magnitude and the apparent magnitude, that's all we need to get the distance. So if we get those two numbers, we can all of a sudden, we've got the distance to, to that star and to any other stars that happen to be in, the same, in a cluster with it. Cepheids, we looked at, we looked at on the previous slide, I showed you the, that there was a period luminosity relationship. So the luminosity and the period, period gets longer that way, luminosity here, and it was about a straight line. Meaning that if we can measure this, this is easy, very easy to measure the period, right? You've only got to take a lot of images of the star, find out how bright it is today, how bright it is tomorrow, how bright it is next week. Over the period of a few months, you can actually measure and find out how long it takes it to go from brighter to fainter to brighter to fainter and back and forth. So you can measure that very easily as long as you can identify the star, as long as it's bright enough to be able to be seen. If you know that, we know, we know its period, we measure that, we can then determine its luminosity. Once we've got that, luminosity, absolute magnitude, how bright it really is intrinsically, if we know that number, again, we get the apparent magnitude, how bright does it appear to be, then we can get the distance. So with either one of these, these are great distance determinations because we have a way of getting their brightness without knowing anything else. We don't have to have them close enough to be able to measure a parallax. We don't have to have, you know, don't know spectra of them. We don't have to use a spectroscopic parallax. We have a method of getting these and being able to measure distances much further out than we were able to do before. So what it really does is expand our distance ladder and, oops, clusters. As I said, they're finding clusters, found in clusters. Remember globular clusters? I made you plot one of those HR diagrams way back. You still hate me for it, I know. Yeah, see, I see this head's nodding. Um, made you plot one of those, and they are found all around our galaxy. If you recall, we looked last time, I showed you an image of our galaxy done by William Herschel, and we had our sun, and it was about at the center of our galaxy, and he counted all the stars around it and found out that we were close to the center of the galaxy based on his. Well, now that we can determine distances further out, these RR Lyrae stars are f commonly found in globular clusters. So these clusters are scattered all around our galaxy. That means they're scattered all around. They're not just, not just in the plane where it would be very hard to see them because of dust. Right? Stars, it was hard for him to count stars in this direction because there was so much dust down there. When you look in that plane, it's very hard to see them. But here, these are seen at all different distances. And when you map them all out, you find the RLIRA stars, you make a map of them, you find out now instead of us being very close to the center of our galaxy, you find that we're about 8,000 parsecs away from the, from the center of the galaxy. 8,000 parsecs, about 25,000 light years. So it really gave us a true measure of how big our galaxy was. Herschel tried, and he did a great job for what he had. He just did not have the technology and the knowledge yet to be able to really determine it. Now we can figure out how far our galaxy, how big our galaxy is, how far we are away from its center. We can estimate the total size of the galaxy, about 30,000 parsecs, a little over 90 to 100,000 light years across. 
So we get a much better idea of where we are in our galaxy. No, we're not at the center. So Earth's not at the center of the universe. The Sun's not at the center of the universe. We're not even at the center of the galaxy. We're just further out here towards, in fact, out towards the edge of our galaxy. Center being there. There's the Sun and there's still a little more beyond it, but it starts to fade out then. So it really gives us a good idea, a better idea of where we are within our galaxy and what our galaxy looks like. We'll come back to that in the next section when we look at how did our galaxy, galaxy form. So there's our distance determinations. We've looked at a couple of these before. We looked at radar ranging. Works real great. You can bounce a signal off the moon and find out how far it is away. You can also do it to Venus. Uh, you can do it to Mars. Beyond that, you're pretty much out of luck. You know, even trying to send signals out to Jupiter, you're only going out about one astronomical unit. It's kind of hard to get out much further than that with radar ranging. So. But it gives you really accurate measurements, but only within the very near part of the solar system. Stellar parallax was the main one. That was our first real way of getting distances, that shift of the nearby star compared to the more distant stars. So that worked out to about 200 parsecs, about 600, 600, 700 light years. That's very much our very own neighborhood in the galaxy. Spectroscopic parallax helped us a little bit more. As you recall, you determine the spectral class, so you measure that. That's easy enough to see as long as you've got enough light from that star to split it up into a spectrum. Find out where it, where it appears. So where does that appear? Tells you the brightness. Tells you how bright it is. Well, that gives us a jump from a 200 parsecs to 10,000, so 30,000 light years. Still not even outside of our galaxy. That's still within our galaxy. Recall our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. So 30 to 40,000 light years gets us a good chunk of our own galaxy with that method, but not beyond it. The variable stars, these are some of the brightest stars that we can see. Some of those are way up here. When that, some of those brightest ones were way up here for the Cepheids. So we can see them over much larger distances. We can get out to 25 million parsecs. 75 million light years. Okay, I know one parsec or one light year is hard enough to comprehend. So try to comprehend 75 million light years. Hard, right? I mean, just not a number that sticks in your head. If I try to tell you 75 miles, you can figure that out, right? 75 million light years is not something you can comprehend. We're still only looking at our neighborhood of the universe. We've gotten um, about one half of 1% out to the edge of the universe using these. So we've still got more methods to come. This will expand. We'll find a couple more up there that will actually help us a little bit further and get us a little bit further out on the distance scale. But we're still, even though we've gone out 75 million light years, 80 million light years, we're still in our own neighborhood. We haven't begun to get out towards the edge of the universe. You know, one half of 1% of the way out to the edge, which would be about 13 and a half to 14 billion light years. All right, so what does our galaxy look like? Using things like the globular clusters and being able to measure their distances sort of helps to give us a picture. And this is not a diagram, not a photograph of our own galaxy. It's hard to photograph our own galaxy, especially to look at something like this, because we're stuck inside it and we can't get out. You know, we can't just magically take a trip. You know, tens of thousands of light years come up all here, take an image of it, and come right by, come back and get a nice image of what our galaxy really looks like. We have to use more indirect methods. 
And what we find when we measure the distances using some of those methods that I've talked about is that there's our sun about half, three quarters of the way out from the center. There's globular clusters in a big spherical halo around the galaxy. So the globular clusters are all around. Imagine a big sphere around our entire galaxy that contains these globular clusters. The galaxy itself is flattened into a disk. So there's a disk here with spiral arms in it. And then there is a center. There is a center to the galaxy. Um, but we just don't happen to be near it. We probably wouldn't want to be near it. Once we know that there's a three and a half million solar mass black hole right there, we don't want to be right there. Um, and then there's a bulge of material around it. So there's a big spherical halo, a flatter bulge, and then a very flat disk that make up our spiral galaxy and pretty much any spiral galaxy. All the interesting stuff going on in terms of star formation that we've been talking about is in the disk. That's where all the gas and dust are. Uh, that's where all the o, o and B stars are, all the very young stars. You don't find those elsewhere. That's where all the emission nebulae are. So everything that we said that was associated with star formation is located in the disk of the galaxy, in that flattened area. That's where all the interesting stuff is going on. Most of the other, the halo of the galaxy, has pretty much just been sitting there for you know, 10 billion years now. Not much has happened there in a long time. In a long time. So, what do we see? What formed early on? The halo is the oldest part of the galaxy. So that's the big spherical section around our galaxy. Let me get a. So we have our galaxy there. Put our picture back up here. There's a bulge at the center. There's disk around it, and there's a big halo around the whole thing. The halo is essentially a great big sphere around the entire galaxy, so imagine that in three dimensions. That's where all the old stars are. This, this halo contains old stars and no gas or dust, or essentially none. Meaning that if you don't have gas and you don't have dust, it's kind of hard to form new stars. Right? You don't have anything to make the stars from. All you've got is the stars that are left over. There's not enough gas and dust left out there that can be concentrated to really form new stars. So essentially this has not formed stars in about 10 billion years. After 10 billion years, there aren't many stars left in it. Right? The stars that are left are stars like the sun or smaller. So like our, st our sun or smaller. You don't have any you know, great big O and B stars. There's no supernovae going on there. Right? All the stars that could go supernovae did so long ago. Nothing else has happened in that in billions of years. The disk is here, is younger, has young stars in it, and some old stars, but it has primarily a lot of young stars, and it has lots of gas and dust, or dust and gas since I started writing it that way. And it has the regions of star formation. That's where all the stars are forming right now. So where the stars are forming. So you have the halo has the old stars. The disk has mostly young stars and we're all of the youngest stars. That's the only place you're going to find most of those stars that are way up on the main sequence. You know, all those ones way up here, you're only going to find those in the disk. Anything in the halo is all the very small red stars. 
and the red giants that they'll evolve into. But all of these big, massive main sequence stars are only found in the disk. Around the center of the galaxy, you've got the galactic bulge, which is kind of a mixture. It's kind of a mixture of these two. It's got some old stars, some young stars. So it's got a lot of old stars. It's also got some star formation going on. Not near as much as you have out here in the disk, but it still does have some of that going on. So three main parts. You've got the halo, you have the disk, you have the bulge, and then somewhere deep down there at the center, and we'll talk about this in the last section, is the galactic center. That's got that big massive black hole, millions of times the mass of the sun at the center. And that, all that material there is what keeps everything, you know, everything orbiting around. So everything orbits around the center of our galaxy just the way planets orbit around the sun. Each of the stars is orbiting around. Each of the stars, each of the clusters is orbiting around in an orbit around the center of the galaxy. Just like each of the planets, each of the comets, everything else is orbiting around our sun. Here's an infrared picture of our galaxy. We start to see a little bit more detail. If you remember some of the pictures we looked at in visible light, there were lots of clumps, lots of dust there. When you look at it in the infrared, we get to see through that dust. That's great. We can actually see in there and we can see a little bit more what's going on. So this is a picture of our galaxy. Look to edge on, mainly because we're sitting inside that disk. That's the only way we can see it. There's the galactic bulge. There's the disk. And the halo is just all the material scattered around this. So this would be an image of the entire sky taken. In fact, there's right there are two satellite galaxies of our own. So we're not even out all by ourselves. There's actually a couple galaxies. And if you ever travel south of the equator, you get to see them. If you're up here, stay north of the equator, you don't get to. These are the Magellanic Clouds. But they're very far south in the sky, so you have to be very, you have to be down south of the equator really to be able to get them high enough in the sky to be seen. Although if you're down in Australia, New Zealand, they're very prominent in the sky. You can't, you can't miss them, but you can actually see some of these nearest galaxies. We can see the Andromeda galaxy. I can't point it out on there, it would be too small. Uh, but that is visible. Now you can actually see that. It's actually visible with the naked eye. You, know, you can see it as a splotch of light. Won't look anything like these. It's much further away. You know, these stand out as big clumps of stars sitting, on, sitting in the sky. The Andromeda galaxy is sort of this fuzzy patch that you see if you don't quite look at it straight on. If you look a little bit off, you can actually, you can actually see that in the, evening, in the evening sky now. All right, so what are, these st- what are these stars? The galaxy is made up of lots of stars, and they have orbits. They all orbit around the center of the galaxy. If we look at the disk first, that's what we're used to. right? You've got the disk here, there's the center of the galaxy, something going on in there. And you've got all these stars going in nice uniform orbits, nice circles around, circles, ellipses around the center of the galaxy. So that's what our sun is doing taking hundreds of millions of years to go around to make one orbit around the galaxy. But they all go together. They all go in one, you know, they're all moving together. When you look at the stars that are in the halo and the globular clusters in the halo and you measure how they're moving, they're going every which way. So you might have one that's orbiting around like this. You can have another one that's orbiting the opposite direction. You can have some that are going that direction, some that are going this direction. Their orbits are essentially completely random. Same thing when you get down to the bulge. 
There's a little bit of an overall rotation there. You get some fit there, but it's, a, it's also quite random. You also got a lot of stars moving every direction. This is going to tell us something about how the galaxy formed. And in order, in fact, in order to explain how the galaxy formed, we kind of have to look and try to be able to explain all of these little bits and pieces that we're seeing. This is the evidence. This is what we measure. We see how the stars are moving. And then we've got to find a model that works to explain how our galaxy formed that says this is how it should, how everything should end up being. So let me see, is the table next? Yep, there's the big table from your book, table 14.1, which really just breaks down everything as to what we see. And if we want to figure out how to form our galaxy, or how our galaxy might have formed, we have to look at, here's the properties. We have to be able to explain why do we have a disk that is very flat and a halo that's almost a sphere around it. Galactic bulge, kind of in between, about a football shape. Why does the galactic disk contain all the young and old stars? The halo has no young stars at all. Why do we see all the gas and dust there? So why did all this happen? Why do we see gas and dust in one, not in the other? Star forming. These all kind of relate together, right? If you don't have gas and dust, you're not going to get star formation. If you're not getting star formation, can't have young stars. They don't live long enough. They'd all be gone. That's what's happened in the halo of the galaxy. So they kind of relate together, but how do we explain those? How do we explain that in terms of the formation? In terms of orbits, as I just, we just looked at, the gas and stars are moving in circular orbits in the disk. Pretty much in a nice big circle around the, around the circular. Roughly circular, meaning that they're elliptical. Um, not perfect circles as was once thought. Pretty much in the halo, they're completely random, going every which direction. In the disk, we also see structure. We see spiral arms. We see all sorts of interesting things going on there. In terms of the halo, really there's not much there. It's just, it's just stars, random stars, sort of spread out throughout this whole spherical halo around the uh, center of the galaxy. In terms of what color we see things, the galactic halo is very red. Why is it red? Well, we got rid of all these stars over here. Those are all the blue stars. If we have something that's you no know, uniform and we get rid of all the blue stars, what's left over? Red stars. So you've got red stars, red dwarf stars, red giant stars. You've got all those left, but you don't have any blue stars. So the galactic halo is going to look very red in color, whereas the blue color we're going to see really in the spiral arms. That's where the stars are just forming. That's where you have these stars that are way up here on the main sequence. Those biggest, biggest, brightest main sequence stars, those are the ones that are just forming. So if we're forming them currently, then we can actually still see, we can still see them. If they've only, if they live for two million years or three million years and they formed a million years ago, we can still get to see them. If they only live for that two million years and they formed a billion years ago, we're out of luck. So we can actually see all of them. That gives the disk a little whiter color to it, and meaning that it has a lot more hot stars in the disk than you have in the halo. And again, I really didn't go through the bulge on each of these. The bulge is kind of halfway in between. It's got a little bit of each. It's kind of a yellowish white color. So it's got more red stars than the disk, and it's got less blue stars than the halo. So it's a little bit yellower, but not quite as red as the, as the halo. 
But those are the properties. That's what we see. So our model to explain how the galaxy formed needs to be able to explain all of, the, all of what we're seeing here. So what we think formed is that at some point we had gas clouds out in space. In fact, you might recall this, right? It looks a little familiar to, we've, we talked about this forming the sun, right? Talked about how the solar system formed. You had a gas cloud that started to collapse. Here you could have had several gas clouds perhaps colliding. You had stars forming in them. Sort of proto-galaxies, like you had proto-stars. You've got several proto-galaxies that may, co may combine together. Overall, they have some sort of rotation to them. Maybe not very much, but maybe they're rotating very slightly in this direction, very slowly. When you collapse something down, as they start to collapse, what happens to the rotation? Speeds up, right? So it goes faster and faster. So you're going to start speeding that up. The stars that form, and I've gone through this before, but stars don't collide together. So even if you're collapse, collapsing those gas clouds with stars forming in them, the stars themselves pass right by each other. They're so tiny that they pass right by each other. But the gas clouds, which are many, many times bigger, they can be light years across, they'll collide. They'll collide, they'll lose energy, and they'll collapse down to the disk. So this explains the collapse of this. The stars stay. So the stars that have already formed are there, but all the gas clouds are constantly colliding into each other, losing energy, and they collapse down to this flattened disk. So the gas and the dust fa fall down to the plane of the galaxy, stay there, continue to form stars. Whereas the stars that had formed very early on remain. So we still see those at the end. We still have a whole big spherical halo of stars around them. Those are ones that were moving essentially in random directions. Right? There was very little, ran there was just random motions to it. They hadn't gotten any kind of ordered motion until they began to collapse and form into this disk. So we ended up forming a lot of material towards the center, right? just like our sun. In the solar system, the sun formed towards the center. A lot of material there. What was left over formed the planets. In this case, it formed lots of stars, lots of stars around that. So this explains a lot of what we see in the observations. It can explain why everything flattened to a disk, those gas clouds colliding. And I think I've given you the example before, but you know why stars don't collide and why ga gas clouds do. And in terms of sizes, it's like taking a bunch of BBs and bouncing them around this room. You don't get BBs that can just bounce around here. Take 10 of them, bounce them around this room. They're never going to collide. Right? Okay, maybe the odd one will once in a while, and sure, stars could on the rare occasion collide if everything was perfect. If you took, on the other hand, 10 big beach balls and bounced them around this room, they're going to be bouncing into each other all over the place. And they're going to collide, and unlike beach balls which will bounce off each other, these gas clouds will stick together. They'll stick together and, and coalesce and begin start more star formation. So same kind of effect here. You've got these very big objects that are colliding. They lose energy. They collapse down to the plane. And that's where all the star formation is then going on. We then have a rotation which is sped up by this collapse. So it explains why we have a rotation in the disk but not in the halo of the galaxy. If all the dust and the gas fall down to the disk, that's where all the dust and gas is left. So you can still, now that you can form stars in the disk, because you have gas and dust there. You can't form any stars in the halo because all the gas and dust left the halo. 
It all went down to the disk. So it explains a lot of the properties that we see. In terms of the coloring, your blue is going to be where you see the youngest stars. So sort of looks, again, a lot like how we explained our solar system forming. Something started that cloud to collapse and then formed the solar system out of it. Here, perhaps a collision of several uh, smaller, smaller galaxies, smaller clouds that would have formed a, formed our, eventually formed our galaxy. The halo would yeah, kind of represent the boundary. It's not a well-defined boundary. It's like trying to tell where the, surf, where the edge of the Earth's atmosphere is. It just gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And trying to define exactly where that is would be difficult. Or you know, where the edge of the sun's atmosphere. I mean, it gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And you know, technically, the particles just keep going and going and going. So trying to really define exactly where that is to say how big our galaxy is is tough. Which is one of the reasons, I think, remember it was my other class or this one, we, there's a homework problem in the first set that does, has the size of the galaxy. And I get all sorts of ranges from about 60 or 70,000 light years up to about 120,000 light years. Because it's that different trying to really tell where the edge of the galaxy is. It's not something that's easy to tell. So what does our galaxy look like? There we go. There's our galaxy. Or roughly. We can't, we can't see it directly. We can't go fly up there. Take a picture and look back down on it. But we can, from our location, make measurements. We can make radio, radio measurements of these gas clouds, find out how far away they are, find out how they're moving, and sort of piece together a map of how the galaxy looks. And what it looks like, it is a spiral. So we can map out the spiral arms. And you can see those here. It's got a central bulge to it. It's actually, and we'll talk about the different types of galaxies in the next chapter, it's actually what we classify as a barred spiral. It means there's a bar going through the center. So you have this, instead of the spiral arms going right down into the center, you notice how they kind of come off the edges of a bar here. We see galaxies, many galaxies like that. And our galaxy seems to be one of them, that instead of the spiral arms just spiraling directly into the, all the way down in towards the core, they actually come off the edges of a bar. As the, as the galaxy formed. Why? It's a good, good question. And really trying to understand that is something we're, do, we're still working on. I mean, we know that they do form. We see them. We can see lots of images of them. It's not just saying, well, our galaxy is different and this is it. There's lots of galaxies that form like that. But you do see some. You see some where the spiral arms go, come sort of out of the bulge right there. And you see others like ours where the spiral arms come off the edge of a bar like that comes down to probably how the spiral arms form. Since I can't really give you a good explanation of how spiral arms form yet, I can't really g it's even harder to give you a good explanation of why we get two different types of spiral arms. We have some ideas of maybe how the spiral arms form, maybe through some kinds of collisions of galaxies if they're done in the right direction. But it's not something that's very well understood. But this is about what our galaxy looks like from maps made internally. So looking outward, trying to measure the distances, measure all the gas clouds, we can get a pretty good idea of what our galaxy, our galaxy looks like. And that's probably something, if, you, if someone were a distant astronomer in the right location, were looking at our galaxy, would see something much like this. Now, talk about the spiral arms a little bit. What is going on with spiral arms? Again, I can't really tell you how they form. We're still really... Uh, that's still a current research topic. We do know a little bit about how they move. 
and they don't rotate along with the galaxy. All the stars orbit around the galaxy. The spiral arms do rotate very slowly, but they don't rotate like a solid, like a pinwheel. It's not like a pinwheel spinning. How do we know? Well, as I told you, the sun takes like maybe 250 million years to orbit around the galaxy once forever, right? But in the history of the galaxy, that means that the sun would have orbited, on the sun's life, it would have orbited around 20 times. So if those spiral arms orbited around 20 times and wound up and would wind up, they'd wind up and get tighter and tighter. You'd get the inner particles moving faster and you'd wind those up. you get the outer particles moving slower and you'd wind up those pinwheels. So essentially every galaxy we see should look like this and you wouldn't see very many galaxies that had very spread out spiral arms. But we don't. We don't see these types of galaxies. So you don't see them getting all wound up as though they're moving you know, like the planets in the solar system. Mercury moves around very quickly. Neptune moves very slowly around there. If we did that within the galaxy, then everything would wind up. So they don't really rotate along with the galaxy. And in fact, the stars rotate separately from the spiral arms. They might be in a spiral arm. The sun has passed through spiral arms and it's passed out of them. So you can go through the spiral arm and you can come out of, you can come out of it. Stars can form in the spiral arms and then eventually end up between the spiral arms. So you don't stay in one spot. You move, the stars are moving relative to those arms. Now what we think of these, let me give you this, is that they're sort of like a, what we call a density wave. Think of it maybe as a traffic jam of cars or a traffic jam of stars. The stars move in and out of the traffic jam. So the traffic jam might move, right? You got this nice slow truck or whatever moving down the highway and you got traffic backed up behind it as it goes around. Well, it's not all stopped, assuming no accident, we're still, the truck is still moving. So the traffic jam is moving at one speed, but the stars, in this case the cars, are moving through the traffic jam. So you eventually get past it and you get back up to your normal speed and everything is just fine. Well, stars are probably doing the same thing. They move through the spiral arms and then as they get out, so they form in here, the youngest stars would be in close to the spiral arms but they're moving a little bit faster than those arms, so they'd eventually get out. And they'd end up being out here. There's the older stars, here's the young stars in the emission nebulae right in the edge of the spiral arm here. And then further out you have the older stars and eventually they'd work their way around as they orbit and they'd pass through another spiral arm, you know, maybe a hundred million years later. They'll pass through another one. So we think that the spiral arms, not how they form, but how they maintain themselves is sort of like this big traffic jam. That there's something that's slowing them down, that there's a big wave and once you've got that wave formed, maybe in a collision of galaxies, starts this, then it keeps up and it, and it uh, keeps, keeps going itself. So it will keep forming, it'll keep forming new stars, they'll move out, then the next set of stars will move, into, will move into it, the gas clouds will move in, be slowed down and compressed, start forming new stars. So we think that's how, that's how they work. And again, sort of like, a tra like that traffic jam. The cars don't move. The cars don't get stopped. It's not the whole set of cars. Typically, yeah, you can have traffic jams like that where everything's moving the same. But typically there's one something that's going slow. Some oversized truck that's going at 40 miles an hour, right? And everybody's got to go around it real slow because it's taken up a lane and a half. So you're going around it carefully and that backs up everything there. But the stars, those cars, are slowly moving through that traffic jam. That's what we think the the, the uh, spiral arms, how they maintain themselves.
questions? All right. So here's a little bit other picture how we can do that. As you get through, when you get those clouds of gas and dust moving into the spiral arms, recall that's where everything's slowing down. So you got things moving, you got all the cars moving together, you have no accidents normally, right? You got everything moving together, all, they're all moving at the same speed. When all of a sudden you get this slowdown, things start bumping into each other. Okay, so these gas clouds start colliding together and then include, causes more star formation. So you start off with something like here, here's the very young stars. You get a whole bunch of supernovae and shock waves and then you get new sets of stars forming forming from those. So your original stars were here, now you've got new stars that have formed from those shock waves. You start compressing one set, the shock wave compresses more, and then continues on and sort of illuminates. That spiral arm will now glow, you know, like Christmas lights. You've got all illuminated, not just by the supernovae, but by all the hot, bright stars around it. Oops. And I'm out of time. I'm sorry. Somebody can yell at me. I am out of time, right? I've got 10.52. I'm sorry. So I will stop there. and <laughs> wanted to finish up spiral arms. I think that was, that was the end of spiral arms, so that's perfect anyway. And I'll finish up that. Yeah, wave to me if I miss watching my watch. <laughs> I don't like to hold you too late. And then I'll come back and we'll talk next time. We'll talk about getting the mass of our galaxy and we'll finish up our galaxy. Should finish it up on Wednesday then. So, questions?